Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. Learning Chinese is intimidating. Four tones, 3,000 odd characters or ideograms to carry on a basic conversation, a completely different orientation of words on the page, oh, and about a dozen mutually unintelligible languages classified as Chinese whose speakers wouldn't even understand one another. Becoming literate in any Chinese language was even more difficult at the turn of the 20th century than it is now. Then, no standard pronunciation system existed to get you started on the road to learning one of them. And the story of how Mandarin won out, and how its tens of thousands of ideograms survived threats of colonization, simplification, and romanization, is the subject of the new book, Kingdom of Characters by Jing Tzu, a professor of East Asian languages and literature at Yale. She joins us on the podcast to discuss the rebels, novelists, engineers, librarians, and fringe reformers who made modern Mandarin what it is today. Thanks so much for talking to me, Jing. Thank you for having me, Stephanie. So why did you want to tell the story as the subtitle of your book reads of the language revolution, or really revolutions, that made China modern? Well, I wanted to do three things. Um, One, to write a book about how China came to be the global power that it is today. Two, to explain the driving force behind that process, which I argue in the book is the modernization of its written language into a technology. Right, a path that took more than four centuries to bring to fruition. And three, to tell that story, um, a very human story, through the lens of individuals who made it happen. Geniuses, hacks, innovators, adventurers, patriots, from both the East and West. Your story starts in the 19th century, sort of in the midst of the Boxer Rebellion, in the wake of the Opium Wars, as China is going through a million upheavals, really. And the Chinese language is at this time sort of at the heart of the debate about modernization. So, I mean, just to sort of set the table for listeners, what's so difficult about the Chinese language for people to learn in the 19th century? Why is it more difficult than, you know, learning to read or speak French, say? Well, I think a a good way to start is to actually appreciate what is so great about the English language or the Western alphabet. First of all, you only have 26 letters to deal with. And as soon as you learn that, you can basically make up any word, spell any word from English, French, German, Spanish, Italian, any language that uses it in the Indo-European language family. Um, And that's all you have to do. And the other very powerful thing about the alphabet, and this is something we think about less, is how it comes in a particular order. Like B always comes after A, C before D, and T will never come before S. And this is actually quite powerful because within itself, the alphabet already possesses a kind of sequential logic that's really important for organizing just about anything, right? You can think of, you know, sometimes we call it the ABCs or we say, um, you know, it's A list as opposed to B side. You know, all that carried a certain kind of weight of what kind of value, how important we think things are, how we prioritize them. So now, turn to the Chinese language. First of all, it doesn't have 26 letters. It comes in characters, or what they call logograms, which are these really discrete um, clusters of parts that come together to form what we would recognize as a word in Chinese, even though a word in Chinese is really not the same as an English word. 
Moreover, not only does it have um, more complicated structure, there's also a lot more of them, about 80,000. Now, admittedly, many or most of that 80,000, those characters we don't really use in everyday, in everyday life. And that's why for a average literacy, um, you know, to read newspapers and books and to get around, you need about three to 4,000. But that's still three to 4,000 characters, which is really daunting. So the period you're talking about in the late 19th century is where they begin to think about, is this language going to survive? Is our written um, script, our writing system going to survive the modern age where everything's faster and more precise and, you know, technology, whether it's cars or electricity or telegraphs, um, automobile, you know, all kinds of um, tractors and machines that are overtaking human labor. Like, will this kind of language survive? So that was the preoccupation of this um, late 19th century generation of reformers who were actually the first to recognize maybe we need to do away with the Chinese script. And who were the different camps at this time? Because what I thought was really interesting is that in a way, like the Chinese language seemed at the heart of multiple tug of wars because it's not like there was one Chinese either. <laughs> What kind of factions were around at the time and what were they fighting over? Yes, thank you for noting that because I think it is it is still easy. You know, we appreciate the abstract. Oh, China is huge and it's very diverse. But then when we talk about these days, we still talk about it like a monolith. And in fact, as you point out, there are different speakers, different regional politics. And as soon as you get away from Beijing or Shanghai these days, you know, things feel very different in a more remote province like Sichuan, the city of Chengdu, it just feels more relaxed. So at this time, you also have that kind of faction in the late 19th century. There's obviously the Northerners, right? That's sort of where the state capital was. Um, they're very insistent and very proud of a kind of Northern dialect-based language group. But then you have the South. If you've been in Hong Kong or Taiwan, you all recognize that even if you don't know Chinese, that they speak in a different kind of intonation, that these sound more distinctly more tonal because they actually have more tones than the four or five that we think of when we learn Mandarin. And so there's a north-south divide and then there's a kind of coastal versus hinterland divide. So in fact, these three areas I just talked about, so the Beijing, the south, and the hinterland like Chengdu or Sichuan, these three factions, for instance, would try to fight during this very fateful Congress in 1912 or so where they were trying to figure out what should be the standard of the national language. Yeah, I mean, I loved reading about that 1912 Congress because <laughs> you yes. write that a lot of people, you know, still sort of raise their fists and shake it, thinking about how like Cantonese narrowly lost the vote in 1912 to become the official phonetic alphabet. Um, and it's all really thanks to this one guy, Wang Zhao, who was very instrumental in sort of creating the, not the first, but I guess the most modern or not, I want, what adjective am I looking for? <laughs> no, actually, you know, the fact that you're kind of trying to figure out how to, in some ways, classify him is, mm -hmm. I think is exactly right, because he's very unusual in the way we think about China or even history. You know, we like martyrs, revolutionaries, like heroes, or we swing to the other end and we think about, we like the little people, the peasants. And, you know, Wang Zhao and, and a number of characters in this book are what I called the second 
or third stringers of history, because they were not at the front line. They were not completely um, disenfranchised. They were the builders, you know, sort of the unsexy group of, you know, moderate progressive who really thought that change came gradually, that it was not going to come overnight. And so, you know, Wang Zhao is one of these, you know, he was actually one of the supporters of the last imperial rule. You know, he did not want to topple the dynasty, but he did want China to update itself, right? To build modern education infrastructures, to come up with a new language system that could help its people learn better. Because when we think about it this time, and maybe most parts of the world, literacy was actually a huge deal, right? Not many people were literate. So for Wang Zhao, that was the big issue. But of course, he was human too. And he was a northerner. I'm very proud of that. And so when he was at this 1912 Congress, he made sure that the northern-based Mandarin was going to become the basis of the national tongue. And he went to great lengths. You know, I mean, Wang Zhao's not someone you want to have as a colleague. <laughs> I mean, by all counts, I mean, he was grumpy, curmudgeonly, very uncompromising. And, you know, the chapter one opens with him basically stowing across the, the, the Chinese border and sneaking back in as a, you know, disguised as a Buddhist monk, because at the time he was a wanted fugitive. So, you know, the guy has some gumption and has some nerve. And then he went around and tried to rally support for his, um, what he called the Mandarin phonetic alphabet, which was this uh, blueprint for how Mandarin was going to be the basis for the modern Chinese language that he basically tucked away in his robe and brought back to China. And so, you know, obviously someone who could survive that was not going to take anything lying down at this 1912 Congress, you know, when you're faced with a few Southern delegates. Actually, there was a, not a few, but quite a lot. And so Wang Zhao pulled this thing off where he basically kind of outmaneuvered them and forced through the vote of Mandarin. But in the process, he also, there was a very, the, the scene that you're describing um, was when he, you know, Wang Zhao was sitting there and it was during a break and, you know, these Southern delegates you know, to chatting across the aisle. And one of them said the phrase for rickshaw. And to Wang Zhao's ear, he was sure that the guy was calling him a son of a bitch. So he basically stood up, you know, flew across the aisle and basically started hitting this guy. And, you know, the, the lore has it. And many, and there was this witness there who, you know, who, who wrote this down, that they just watched this guy run out of the hall, never to come back again. So, you know, he was a tough bird. And it took that kind of, tenacity, political maneuvering, and but also a real belief in what he was doing, the real cause of the Chinese script revolution, that he actually managed to get Mandarin up there as the basis of what we now think of as modern Chinese. And especially with Wang Zhao's belief that China's modernization had to come from within, because, you know, at this time in the 19th century, Westernization, as you say, was basically a synonym for modernization. And there were a lot of different efforts to, you know, adopt Romanization for Chinese and other colonial powers, you know, France in Vietnam managed to do it. And so Vietnamese doesn't use characters anymore. They have an alphabetic script. Um, but Wang Zhao and so many others were insistent that China resist Romanization, stick to something Chinese why was that resistance so powerful? You know, and, and I think you're absolutely right that that resistance is still very powerful, right? I think throughout 20th century, China's tale of modernization has been a struggle between 
Is modernization the same as westernization? You know, is it possible to forge our own path? But, but we have so much to learn from the West. And I think that was the mentality for most of the 20th century. And you know, by all counts, the Chinese language, the Chinese script system should not have survived. That is to say, if you look at it evolutionarily, like any linguist would tell you that languages tend toward simplification. And so the only reason that the Chinese script survived is really because of the sheer will and the desire of these people that I talk about in my book, where you know each Chinese speaker, each native speaker of Chinese had a stake in the picture and its survival. And not just the Chinese, Westerners, these Europeans I talk about, the French count who was captured in 1860 and nearly castrated, or, you know, other adventurers, outsiders who really was intrigued by the Chinese script and wanted to prove the universality of alphabetization. They all had to come to terms with how Chinese was going to survive the modern age. So I think due to these multiple efforts and actually kind of a collaborative, if at times rivalrous and competitive process, you know, both the Chinese and outsiders, foreigners, had a lot to do with how Chinese script still survives today. I mean, I think throughout your book, with every technology to which Chinese has to adapt, and I didn't quite realize how many there were, just because I think we've moved beyond them, but like, not just the typewriter, but telegraphs, <laughs> card catalogs, like, name your technology, you had to shoehorn Chinese into it somehow. Um, but it seems like looking at all of them, sort of broadly speaking, there are two approaches that people took. The first would be making the Chinese character system fit within a system designed for alphabetic languages. So like the typewriter or telegrams or two, come up with a system that's based in the Chinese character system. So like Wang Zhao's phonetics would be one example or like a, a card catalog based on character strokes or like a dictionary. Yes, and I think the pivotal moment, and you see this exactly what you're saying very clearly, was actually in the 1970s, right? When the Chinese were coming out of the Cultural Revolution, the country was in ruins. Um, many intellectuals were persecuted, so they didn't even have many engineers or even college-educated intelligentsia. And the question for them, my gosh, to bridge them to the computing age that was just beginning to dawn you know, actually in Silicon Valley in the West, was a huge, huge challenge. And they really had to think about, of course, their preference at the time would be, you know, we should build our own computers, we should provide and create uh, a Chinese computing environment. But it was just not really possible for them to do. So the first computer Chinese had was built with the help of the Russians. And then they started learning from Western models, mostly by importing them, taking them apart, figuring out how they worked, reverse engineering them, and try to learn the hard way. And, you know, after the Cultural Revolution and the opening up, which already happened in 1978, there are these um, foreigners, you know, scientists and um, academics who were traveling to China, very small groups that were allowed in. And they were both, you read their memoirs and the reports, they were both astonished and truly moved and bewildered by the state that the country was in, that despite that, I mean, they were, they were making computer parts by hand and measuring things by hand. You know, they had so little resource. And so under those circumstances for China, even though what it wanted was self-reliance, right? It wanted to be more independent, more self-sufficient. 
because it also learned this the hard way from the Russians when their friendship fell apart. And this the Russians basically pulled out all the Soviet um, scientific advisors, which sort of left China really in, in not a great spot. And so for China, self-reliance was always tremendously important. But of course, they couldn't do this at the time. So they did take this long detour that we now know is kind of the stories of the 70s, 80s, 90s, into 2000s, where they really try to learn from the West. But of course, always, always with the hope that they could someday stand on their own two feet and modernize on their own terms. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting, too, that in in the Mao period of Chinese history, you have a kind of reversal of the previous resistance to Romanization. You know, Mao was willing to simplify. And what I thought was interesting about your summary of this period is that, like, Mao, you know, much as he wanted to stand on his own, had to lean on the West, but also had to lean on, you know, the history of simplified characters. You said that some 80% of the current simplified characters existed before his time. And of those, about 30% were in use before the third century, um, which is pretty astonishing. And I think points to just what you're talking about, this like need to lean on history, lean on Chinese thought, but also reach out to the West. Yes, and I think this is why, you know, in part when I was writing this book, that's all, that was also my personal conviction, that you really need to lean on history to understand modern China, which is not the same, which is not just, you know, Chinese Communist Party post-1949. And so, you know, the, the chapter on Mao doesn't come until chapter five of seven chapters in the book. And it's really because I want to show how this has been a long quest for modern China, period. And when Mao came to power, it is true, he had to rely and he drew from the efforts of the nationalists, right, who were the who were the defeated party who actually, so my family's from a nationalist background. So, you know, Taiwan is where I was born. And Taiwan observes a different kind of script, right? They refuse to simplify. So they still hold on to the kind of traditional characters that, let's say, Wang Zhao was looking at. And so, you know, for Mao to push us through was also because, you know, communist China, the People's Republic of China, it's actually the first time in the 20th century where China was actually unified as a country. And so in some ways to modernize the Chinese language and to make sure that this modernization and the reforms were implemented broadly um, with the power standardization, all that really needed also a powerful state's hand. And I think it also emphasizes the political power of language in Mao's time, for example, like why do it? Why simplify Mandarin? Was it the same kind of sentiment in the 19th century or did it differ? You know, it is because, you know, even though Wang Zhao's time, he was already talking about illiteracy, you know, it's a very slow and gradual process to actually give people the power um, of how to read and write. And that has been a very tough struggle for China. Not until recent years, I, I would say 20, 2016, 2018, where literacy is actually high in the 90s percent, right? And there's still kind of discrepancy in other ways between the urban and rural areas of China. So, you know, by the time Mao came to power, that project was still not complete. But of course, it also took on additional political tone because giving power to literacy was also a great, gives you great political cachet and legitimacy, right? So that's why, 
before, you know, during the Civil War and even before that, the Second World War, where, you know, China was fighting the Japanese and the nationalists and communists, they collaborated, they came together and they sort of turned foes again um, while they were fighting the common enemy. Um, language was actually in, in a very important cultural platform on which the communists and nationalists were battling out their differences and trying to win over constituents. So that's why, you know, this question of literacy inevitably took on a very strong politicized tone. And that's why in many ways, when we look at simplified characters of literacy today, we tend to associate it just with Mao's China, right? We don't really think that it actually had this long germination and, and a whole path um, littered with struggles and failures um, to get to that point. But it is true, it didn't actually get pushed through until the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Right. And just thinking of like Mao's particular project of of stamping out older forms of thought, it also helps if you teach people a simplified form of the language that they can't read a more ornate kind that would say be politically incorrect. Uh, yeah. And the thing is, history set it up for the you know the People's Republic China to take credit, right? That they were the last ones to basically take that project and drag it across the finish line. I mean, is that political struggle over? Do we still have a struggle over characters in the way that we saw it in the 20th century? You most certainly do. Even if, relatively speaking, Mandarization is a lot more widespread than it was, let's say, a century ago, right? I mean, just recently, there was calls to, you know, hanging on to your mother tongue in Hong Kong. Um, Taiwan also had uh, several of these preservation of the mother tongue movements um, in order to protect their own identity. So there are many ways in which in our time, language has become synonymous with a certain kind of identity, right? A kind of native identity. But part of what I want to show in this book is also, you know, we look at this idea of being a native speaker of a mother tongue um, rather unproblematically when it's actually not so natural. Right. I mean, there are people who who lose their mother tongue in order to subscribe to a standard national language. Um, there are others who didn't learn how to speak Chinese and they were they're Chinese, but they're born elsewhere and they come to learn Chinese later. Not to mention the foreigners, you know, in this this era of Mandarinization fever where foreigners are increasingly learning Chinese um, to prepare themselves for what's to come in the 21st century. So, you know, the language and, you know, the, are we the kind of language we speak is also a kind of question that's been open for debate from various parts of where Chinese communities are located in the world. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, the conversations you relate in contemporary committees about characters seem almost like replays of that 1912 struggle between Mandarin and Cantonese. I'm thinking of the tug of war between China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong over which glyph should win out in Unicode. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's such a, it, it is true because standard, because te- technology also puts a lot of pressure on exactitude mm-hmm. and precision. And, you know, for Chinese language, which have been sprawled all over East Asia and been used by different contexts and, you know, characters that were, that were imported into Japan, some of them don't look the same as the ones that they originally split off from. So all those questions present a really um, a kind of new technical challenge for the era of Unicode, where to put language scripts into the computer, you have to be very consistent. And you basically get that one character has been one thing. But just adding to that, you know, this, this whole story of the Chinese script revolution and the modernization of it isn't just something that's a, sort of a Chinese affair. 
right? That's only in Hong Kong, Taiwan, or China. But you know, in the same Mao chapter you were just talking about, I actually talk about this very little-known episode of how the first romanization of the Chinese language was accomplished by neither the nationalists nor the communists, but a Sino-Muslim um, who was actually descendant of these Muslim groups in Western China and who had no access to literacy, except he carried his spoken mother tongue with him, which got Romanized under the Soviet language policy. So there's a lot of different detours in which Chinese language itself becomes a kind of a global story of what it means to survive in the modern world. And, you know, the kind of the different players and different agents and different human carriers that it took to spread far and wide. We have links in the show notes to Jingzu's new book, Kingdom of Characters, as well as a couple other episodes that I've done involving linguistics or Chinese culture. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>